I want to send some shout outs and thank yous to those who have recently contributed to the Crime Lines Coffee Fund. I want to say a big thank you to Linda, Tracy, Gabrielle, Sandra, Rachel, Julie R., Kathleen, Laura, Abigail, Lauren, Jennifer, and Julianne R. Two Julie R's in one month. But thank you both so much. And thank you to everyone who helps keep the show going, whether you're contributing financially through Venmo, PayPal, or on Patreon, or you're just listening to my episodes. All these downloads help. It lets me know that people are enjoying the show. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much to everybody. And on with the show. Several months ago, I wondered in an episode about the lasting effects of McGirt v. Oklahoma on criminal justice in eastern Oklahoma. Well, tonight, we're about to find out. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, and welcome back. Thank you for clicking on this podcast episode this week. Again, I appreciate everyone who decides to spend some time with me, whether it's every week or you just pop in for an episode here or there. As you listen to this, I am actually cabin camping with my family. I will probably be releasing some type of vlog content on the YouTube channel about it when I get back and I have time to edit. I was not going to release an episode this week since taking a week off means I have a week less to work on things. But this case really caught my attention and frankly, it got under my skin a bit. So I wanted to cover it as soon as I could. And since I had planned to take this week off anyway, I realized it was my only open week. So here we are. There are a few reasons I wanted to cover this, but a big part was that I saw an issue that we discussed back in December came up, so I knew we had to get into it. Don't worry about having to go back to listen to that episode because I'll go over all the relevant information when we get to it. Let's start with Brittany Tiger, a woman described as an outgoing firecracker who was always there to help people out. She made time for family and friends, and she was one of those really genuine people, and that shone through in everything she did. Brittany was Sichanku Lakota, with her family's ancestry being in the Dakotas. And the Sichanku Lakota were recently in the news, which is another reason this case caught my attention. The news stories had to do with the boarding slash residential schools here in the U.S. 140 years ago, children from Whetstone Bay were taken from their families and sent 1,300 miles away to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was located in Pennsylvania. During the 40 years the boarding school was open, more than 180 children died while at the school. Poor living conditions led to disease and ongoing abuse and neglect, including malnourishment, then made it difficult for their little bodies to fight the infections. While some remains were returned to the families for burial at the time, not all of them were. For instance, anyone who died of tuberculosis was buried at the school automatically. There was a worry that infected bodies could spread the disease. But others were simply not returned, like 12-year-old Strikes First, the son of Blue Tomahawk, who was from the Rosebud Reservation. Renamed Dennis at the school, he died of pneumonia and was buried on the school property. 
Nine Sichangku Lakota children were buried at the school, including strikes first. And in July 2021, they were respectfully disinterred and returned to the Rosebud Reservation, where they were prayed over and honored by their families and their communities. They were then given a proper burial. Videos of the ceremonies went around social media a lot, particularly since this was coming on the heels of the news of the mass graves found at the residential schools in Canada. I'm sure many of you saw all of this in your feeds. So the Sichanku Lakota Reservation, Rosebud Reservation, is in South Dakota, but Brittany never grew up there. She was born in 1991 in Texas, and then she moved to Ada, Oklahoma, when she was nine years old. In 2014, when Brittany was 23, she married her first husband, Dakota. At the time, she did have children from a previous relationship. Then she and Dakota had a child together. Brittany was a devoted mom to her three kids, though her marriage broke down after a couple of years. In September 2017, she was single again, and she met a man named William Gomez. Will had also been married before, but the two didn't have any children, and that's possibly because Will spent almost their entire marriage, save for a few days, in prison. On June 9th, 2011, Will was 19 years old, and he applied for a marriage license with his girlfriend, Angela. The marriage license was returned signed on June 16th, which meant they got married some point in that time frame. Then four days after the marriage license was officially filed, on June 20th, Will walked into a bank in Choctaw, Oklahoma, with a shotgun, and he robbed it. The van he used as his getaway vehicle was quickly tied to the place where Will worked. Angela soon confessed to driving the van that day, but she said she was forced by Will at gunpoint to do so. When Will left the van to go rob the bank, he threatened to hurt her parents if she wasn't there waiting for him when he was done. According to Angela, that's how it went down. However, because Angela had knowingly used some of the money from the robbery, she was also charged in the case. Will did turn himself in, he pleaded guilty, and was sent to federal prison. He was released in February 2015, with his wife having divorced him in the meantime. By the time Will met Brittany, he had been out of prison for a year and a half or so, and I found no other run-ins with the law. Will and Brittany fell for each other quickly after meeting, and his past seemed to be in the past. She and her three kids moved in with him, and they made what looked like a perfect family. They all seemed very happy together. In April of 2017, just about six months into their relationship, Will and Brittany intended to get married. They even applied for a marriage license. It's not clear why they didn't get married at this point, but they did reapply for a marriage license in August and got married on August 13th, 2017. Things seemed to be going well with the little family until mid-February 2018, six months after the wedding. Brittany texted her mother, Bernadine Bearheels, one night to tell her she needed a break from Will. It was pretty late, around 11 at night, and Brittany said she intended to go to Texas to stay with one of her sisters. An hour later, Brittany texted again to say everything was fine, but that she was having some trouble with her phone. Bernadine didn't hear anything after that, but 
like Brittany said, she was having issues with her phone, so that could have been why she wasn't communicating. But after a few days passed, Bernadine was getting worried because she hadn't heard from Brittany at all. It wasn't common for her to be out of touch for more than a day or two, and surely her phone issue would have been resolved by then. So Bernadine contacted Will, and he said Brittany had actually left the house in the middle of the night, not long after having texted with Bernadine. He didn't know where she was, but he also didn't seem that concerned. Bernadine was, though, and told him he needed to go file a missing persons report since no one had heard from Brittany for the better part of a week. Will said he would, but Bernadine soon found out that by the end of the weekend, he had not. And when the family realized she hadn't been reported missing, on February 19th, Brittany's sister went ahead and reported her missing to the Ada police. At this point, it had been a little more than a week since Brittany's last text to her mother, and no one else had heard from her since. The Ada police went out to conduct a welfare check at Brittany and Will's home and found Will there alone. Will told the officers that Brittany wasn't there and he had not seen her in over a week. According to Will, he last saw Brittany on the night of February 10th. Brittany's kids were with their dads that night, so the two went to bed early looking to catch up on some sleep. Around 3.30 in the morning on Sunday, February 11th, Will woke up and realized Brittany was not in bed. He looked around to see if she was up in the living room or something, but she wasn't there. Will didn't find much missing other than a couple of Brittany's hoodies and her makeup bag, so he assumed she left for a few nights on her own. However, since they didn't own a car, she either left on foot or someone had to have picked her up. Will first said something about not reporting Brittany missing because he didn't think there was a detective on duty on a Sunday. So that would explain why he didn't report her missing on day one. As for days two through eight, Will would later claim that it wasn't unusual for Brittany to just up and leave for a week or so at a time, and that's why he didn't report her missing. Her children were with their dads, so she didn't have a reason she needed to be at home, and he expected her to just show up whenever she showed up. And even with the police coming to his home to do a welfare check, Will didn't seem all that concerned with where Brittany was. I know that's a perception, it's subjective information, but Brittany's family had noticed the same thing, which is why I'm mentioning it. The only emotion Will confessed to having was a little bit of anger that Brittany had left without telling him that she was leaving or where she was going. He decided to just carry on with his week as planned, which included traveling about 45 minutes north to work with his dad in an area near Shawnee, Oklahoma. Brittany's family, on hearing the story, didn't believe it from the start. For one thing, they never knew Brittany to disappear and be out of touch for several days at a time for a week at a time. Since starting her relationship with Will, they rarely saw Brittany go anywhere without him, let alone leave him for a length of time. No one else could back up this story that Brittany just regularly disappeared like this. 
And another thing that made them question the story was that Will never reached out to any of Brittany's family or friends to see if Brittany was with them. He didn't try at all to find her or to talk to her or to ask why she left him in the middle of the night. Had he done any of that, everyone would have realized she was missing sooner, and then she could have been reported missing earlier. Instead, it was over a week before the police became involved. But now that she was reported missing, Brittany's picture and information were released to the press and posted on social media. It took five weeks for the family to get an answer as to where Brittany was when a rancher drove out to his fields to check on his cattle. And that's when he found Brittany's body in a wooded area of the property. While this was not the news the family wanted, they have acknowledged that they feel to some degree blessed when so many families of missing persons never get an answer. They knew what a torment those five weeks were, and they can feel a lot of empathy for those who go through that year after year. Though Brittany's body, of course, had to be formally identified based on circumstances, they were pretty sure it was her early on. This property was about 10 to 15 miles east of Brittany's house and about a mile south of the Coolahoma Stomp Grounds, which is on Chickasaw land. As we learned back in December with our Oklahoma Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women cases, after Congress established Indian Territory in what is now Oklahoma, they never actually disestablished those reservations. They carried on like they didn't exist anymore, but on the books, they did. And still do, which is what the Supreme Court ruled in 2020 in McGirt versus Oklahoma. So I feel the Supreme Court justices back me up in calling this Chickasaw land. At the scene where Brittany's body was found, the investigators were able to establish this was a dumping site. This was not where she died. Brittany was found on her back, her shirt was pulled up a bit, and her hands were outstretched above her head. Taken together, these are all obvious signs that she had been dragged to the spot where she was left. And this area was accessible from the road, so her body had very likely been driven to that area. The autopsy could not determine the cause of death, however. That's not entirely uncommon in cases where there is decomposition. Things like shooting, stabbing, or blunt force trauma to the head would generally still be detectable on decomposed remains, even skeletal remains. There will be injuries to the bone. But then there are other things, some homicide, like strangulation or suffocation, or natural causes like a heart attack that is just not evidenced on the body at this stage. They were able to run some toxicology tests using Brittany's liver, and a very small amount of meth was found there, an amount which seems incredibly unlikely to have caused an overdose. Brittany was not a chronic drug user, so it's hard to 
even say when this would have happened. And of course, it had been about a month since her death before her body was found, which also limits the accuracy of any type of toxicology testing. There are so many factors involved in interpreting post-mortem toxicology results that after five weeks, I don't know how reliable these numbers are. Had it been a larger amount, maybe it would indicate one way or the other, but the Verified News Network got a copy of the autopsy report, and it said that it was 0.0043 milligrams. That's 4.3 micrograms. That is a very small amount. I tried to look up some information on levels needed for an overdose in someone who is just an occasional user, but the best study I found didn't even use equipment that detected at such a low level. So to me, this amount of meth being such a tiny, tiny amount found in our system pretty much tells me it's kind of besides the point and not a factor in her death. But I am not an expert. Like I said, I tried to look up actual research studies, and the one that spoke to what I was looking for wouldn't have even detected this in someone. So there is no cause of death, which means there's also no manner of death, natural, accidental, or homicide. They did rule out suicide based on the totality of the circumstances. It's obvious someone dumped Brittany's body where it was found. And I think more often than not, that does point towards foul play. That said, we do know there are instances where someone dies accidentally and the people they are with panic and they hide the body, usually because they were doing something else illegal at the time the accident occurred. Brittany's body was found with a contusion or hemorrhage on the right side of her chest, so it isn't as though she was found without any injury but the state of the remains made it hard to know the extent of the injuries or even the age of the injuries relative to the time she died. She was also found with dark hairs in both of her hands. Details about the length of the hair or if they are consistent with her own hair have not been released. Even if this is her own hair, that doesn't rule out a homicide. She had long hair, and if she fought back against an attacker, her own hair could have gotten in the way and was pulled out. This case is being investigated as a suspicious death. It is not officially listed as a homicide. The family certainly has their theory about what happened here. Brittany's obituary was published under her maiden name of Tiger rather than her married name of Gomez. Her husband was not mentioned in the obituary at all while her ex-husband was listed as a pallbearer. So in case that gives you any idea of where the family stands, allegedly speaking, of course. For two years, this case was in and out of the news. And then on March 6th, 2020, two years after Brittany Tiger's body was found, an arrest was made. 25-year-old Bodie Chance Starnes was arrested and charged with unlawful disposal of a human corpse. At the time, the police said it was not one thing that led to this arrest, but a few separate tips. 
One woman came forward and told the police that Bodie had told her he helped dispose of Brittany's body. Another person in October 2019 heard Bodie say the same at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And then the police also had an eyewitness. One of Brittany and Will's neighbors saw Bodie and another man who has not been publicly identified carry a suitcase out of the home. Two weeks later, the neighbor found out that Brittany was missing. It doesn't generally take two full-grown men to move a suitcase. The other man with Bodie has not been publicly named and has not been arrested or charged. Bodie was the only one arrested at the time. But then in November 2020, Bodie's attorney challenged the state's jurisdiction over this case, citing Mickert v. Oklahoma, which is that landmark Supreme Court ruling made in July 2020, which was months after Bodie's arrest. So we are going to transport back to that December episode I keep referring to and refresh our memories on this history and how it is impacting cases in Oklahoma today. As part of the Indian Removal Act passed by Congress in 1830, the U.S. set up land west of the Mississippi for tribes. The tribes that resisted moving there were moved by force. And in 1834, the Indian Territory was established, which was eastern present-day Oklahoma. This led to the Trail of Tears and other forced removals. Just because the Trail of Tears is what we learned doesn't mean it was the only incident, not by a long shot. It was a snapshot of a decades-long process. By the 1890s, more than 60 tribes had been forced to move to the Indian Territory. The tribes weren't just driven from the east. Tribes from Kansas and Missouri, which both sit just north of Oklahoma and are west of the Mississippi, were still forced south into Oklahoma. Missouri has no federally recognized tribes in the state because of that. The government eventually changed its mind about Indian Territory and wanted the land for the United States. So they took it. By the early 1900s, the Indian Territory, or what was left of it after settlers had snatched land up, was then parceled out to individuals rather than to tribes. This was considered a necessary step for Oklahoma to gain statehood. All tribal governments had to be dissolved. Oklahoma was then admitted into the Union. So that's the backstory. Treaties made, treaties broken. In 1997, a man named Jim C. McGirt was convicted of sex crimes in state court in Oklahoma. Jim C. is an enrolled member of the Seminole Creek tribe, and the crimes happened in an area that had been set aside by treaty for the Creek Nation. Jim C. was given a life sentence in state prison. Jim C. appealed his conviction based on a jurisdictional issue. Any major violent crime that occurs on a reservation is the jurisdiction of the federal government, not the state. So Jim C. and his attorneys dusted off an 1833 treaty between the U.S. government and the Creek Nation that set that particular piece of land aside for the tribe. 
It actually called this land a permanent home to the whole Creek Nation of Indians. And it said they would stay there so long as they shall exist as a nation and continue to occupy the country hereby assigned to them. Well, the Creek upheld their end of the bargain. The Muscogee Creek Nation has persisted, and they have continuously occupied that land. So the argument was that the treaty, though largely ignored for over a hundred years, still stood because the Creek Nation had upheld their end of the deal. Therefore, Jimsey's crimes were federal jurisdiction, and the state of Oklahoma had no right to try him for them. Jimsey's appeal on this issue went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and he won in July 2020 in a 5-4 decision the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that Oklahoma lacked the jurisdiction to try him. The majority opinion basically said Congress has never officially revoked the treaty, and so the court was going to hold the government to its word. I said back in December I was interested to see what was going to happen when large parts of Oklahoma that have not been functioning as reservations start being treated as such. And from the true crime perspective, I have seen a bunch of cases appealed over this, including one from the same area Brittany's body was found. There has been a steady transfer of cases from Oklahoma State Court to the federal courts since this decision. And one of those cases has been Bodie Starnes. The state has no jurisdiction over Native Americans who allegedly commit crimes in Indian country. And Indian country is now about half of the state. So this applies to Bodhi. There is a history here that I'm just going to give a nod to in regards to jurisdiction over non-Indigenous people committing crimes on Indigenous lands. And if I ever find a case where that applies, I will definitely get into it but it's not entirely relevant here because Bodhi Starnes is indigenous. What we really need to know at this point is that Native American suspect on Indian Territory treaty land means the case is federal. So Bodhi's case was dismissed in state court. Brittany's death investigation is now in the hands of federal investigators. To some degree, it must feel like starting over at the beginning for the family after two years with the Ada Police Department, but sometimes that can be welcome. Getting some fresh eyes, maybe some extra resources on the case might be what it takes to solve it. I know that's the situation with Kaysera Stop's Pretty Places and her case. Her family wants it moved to the federal level to get a new investigation into it. Now, you may wonder, what's the difference between federal charges and state charges? And is it just a matter of going to a different court? Now, I'm going to say I think the biggest issue Bodie Starnes is concerned about, or he should be concerned about, that is, is that if he is convicted in federal court, federal parole laws are not as generous as state parole laws in most cases. Technically speaking, federal parole doesn't even exist. What you can get is supervised release early for good behavior, and there is a formula for figuring out how much time you get off. 
But generally speaking, federal inmates tend to serve more of their sentence than state inmates. If Bodie ends up looking at federal charges and federal time, and federal prison, which can be anywhere in the United States, no guarantee you'll be anywhere near your family where they can visit you, Bodie may be willing to talk if he knows anything. This is all alleged. He is not convicted of anything. But if he knows something, he may be willing to make a deal, something that will let Brittany Tiger's family, including her three young children, know what happened here. As it stands, Bodie is currently in state prison. He's serving a sentence for having contraband while he was in lockup. He basically got caught with a shank after his initial arrest. Charges against him in this case in federal court have not been filed at the time I am recording this. If you have any information on the circumstances surrounding Brittany Tiger's death, you can contact your local FBI field office or leave a tip online at tips.fbi.gov, and I will leave that link in the description box. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals, from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.